Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to episode number 89 of the Mets Up Podcast, presented by the Seven Line. The boys actually sat with the Seven Line for this series up against the Atlanta Braves. We had four, including a doubleheader, which happened yesterday, or actually two days ago now, whenever you guys are listening to this. We split with the Braves. It's not the outcome we looked for, but it could have been a whole lot worse, I could say. So it's not the absolute, the sky is falling, everything's bad. I will say, proud of Mets Twitter again. It seems like everybody's pretty calm, pretty rational right now after this split here with the defending World Series champions, Atlanta Braves. Of course, the boys are going to talk about everything that happened in this series, gives you our thoughts and opinions, breaking down players, breaking down stats, breaking down pitchers, as we always do. Make sure you guys are following us, though, on all our social media, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Metzed Up. You will be able to find us there, especially if you want the video version of everything. Check out the YouTube channel. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, you will be able to find us. Drop us a rating, drop us a review. It really does help us out. And it's a great time to bring in James. James, how you feeling, man? I'm feeling all right, dude. It's been a hectic day. Hectic day for your boy. Coming from our very late night on Sunday into the fact that I've been moving now for these last two days, going to a doubleheader yesterday, going to have to edit this tonight and record my pitcher list first pitch podcast. We're moving right now, but hey, let's go. Keep the adrenaline pumping. Yeah, the boys are zooming. The Mets were zooming, we thought, coming into the series. Kind of got a little bit of a reality check here. We're playing really good baseball. I still don't think we're necessarily in trouble, but game one... Weird vibes from the start, especially because Buck got suspended, like, what, five minutes before the game started? Like, he was on the field talking and giving interviews with Brian Kenny, and then all of a sudden, uh, Buck's, Buck's not managing this game. Yeah, it seemed like a very poignant move by Major League Baseball to punish Buck in a way that he, like, kind of seemingly embarrassed the Mets a little bit. And just based on, for people who don't know, this came on the heels of Sunday night, the Mets allegedly throwing at Kyle Schwarber twice in the ninth inning and then eventually hitting Alec Bohm. Didn't actually hit Kyle Schwarber. Just through two pitches that one was kind of close to him and one was not really that close to him. Got the fans riled up, this and that. But Yoan Lopez was suspended for three games, which might just ruin his entire season. There's very little chance now the guy who goes up and down would would be held on a major league roster for three days and when he can't pitch and suspend a buck pulled him off the field for a game and a move that was very strange looking back yeah and I think it just gave the Mets weird vibes like you said from the start uh we had what Hefner and Chavez and who's our bench coach Dick Scott is that his name that was Sherlock 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 that's his name Sherlock Glenn Dick Sherlock Scott, I don't, yeah Glenn Sherlock I think Dick Scott was the past past teams but it have been like a long time ago <laughs> could have been a really long time ago that's where my head's at game one we do whenever we have the four game series it feels like it is a year ago when we talk about game one and that's kind of how it was but we did have Chris Bassett on the mound and and Chris Bassett fashion he is still just really really good he's so good and he gives so much stability to this rotation Chris Bassett went seven innings on Monday night got eight strikeouts one walk and three earned runs he's just he's just the best he's such a pleasure to watch pitch he does so many different things to the other team during the game it's just like this must have been what it felt like to watch really good pitchers in like the 70s and 80s just be able to pull anything out of your tool belt you want any given moment yeah he will just come at you with five different pitches and he'll throw them all and he'll attack you in a bunch of different ways he makes you very uncomfortable at the plate for someone who doesn't throw like 100 miles an hour when you think of like the prototypical dominant pitchers right now you don't think of Chris Bassett but the way he's been pitching he's up there with some of the best right now in baseball no, oh, yeah, you mentioned five pitches. Bass actually threw six pitches in this one, including one lone changeup. And f- five of those, his primary five, all got at least one whiff, which is, that's a crazy thing to see. Five different pitches getting one whiff. We see guys, even this series, someone we'll talk about later, Carlos Carrasco, who pitched a gem. He only had two different pitches get a whiff. Chris Bass had five pitches get a whiff on Monday night, and they were led by his slider with five whiffs, while his sinker and forcing fastball combined for 18 called strikes. He was just putting it left and right, high and low, at wherever it was coming. The Braves had no idea. 
and he completed seven innings, which is becoming a norm for Chris Bassett, something that every single team in baseball needs so badly. He's got at least six innings pitched in all five of his starts this year, which is legendary status for modern baseball. The only two other guys in the whole league who've done that are Alec Manoa and Joe Musgrove, who are considered some of the better pitchers in this entire league. So Chris Bassett, on par with some of the best pitchers in baseball, like you said, doing a lot of different things to keep hitters off balance every start. Yeah, and you talked about the called strikes. It felt like there was one strike that was not called that really ended up changing this game because outside of that, I mean, Chris Bassett was phenomenal, and even then, he still was very good, but it ended up leading to his one and only walk uh, of Dansby Swanson the entire game, and it felt like things kind of started to shift once that call didn't go our way. What call was that? That was the uh, that was the call low in the zone, right? I'm, for I'm saying three. I'm telling you to embellish on it more because you just kind of went right into it. You didn't explain it. Oh, okay. Well, it was for strike three <laughs> against Dansby Swanson. It would have been to end the inning. Uh, what inning was it? It was the sixth, I think? Fifth inning. Fifth inning? Fifth, sixth inning? No, fifth inning. Fifth. Okay, fifth inning. And he didn't get the strike three on the knees over the middle of the plate. It was shocking. And then I saw something that I really haven't seen an umpire really ever do was after the inning ended because there was a little bit of a little bit of interesting stuff going on in between after the Dansby Swanson walk. He owned up to it. He's like, my bad. And this was kind of a little bit of a precursor, a little foreshadowing for this entire series, which was just horrendously umpired. The umpiring crew, it was what, Rothschild and, or Fairchild, Rothschild's the pitching coach, Fairchild and Laz Diaz and whoever else was out there was horrible, horrendous all, season, all series long. That particular sequence gave... Bassett, his first stress of the whole night, because he, he had thought he struck Dansby Swanson out. He was five, five, six, seven steps off the mound. McCann was out of his squat. Dansby early, like, kicked some dirt, and the umpires never made a call, and everyone played it off like, I mean, Dansby played it off like he knew it was going to happen. But afterwards, Bassett seemed to lose his focus a little bit. He hit Ronald Acuna, and then he had a very scary at-bat against Matt Olson with, with two men on. He got out of that one, but that was stress, and that was the first time Bassett kind of, again, I'll say it again, lost his focus, and it was very clear he did. I think that's another reason why the umpire actually apologized to him, because the umpire saw that that one missed call negatively affected a pitcher who was cruising, for lack of a better term, and I think he kind of felt guilty about that, as he should have, but it didn't really help, because from there, the Braves rallied in the sixth, Travis Darno, Met Killer, official Met Killer, I think Unreal. they said after t- after Wednesday's game that he's now like... 16 for 38 in his career against the Mets, like since he left the team, which is just really fucked up. Absolutely disgusting. And I want to just talk about Darno real quick, too. Is that everyone, I feel like every time he comes back to play, he's like, I can't believe we got rid of this guy. It was so early. Like, he was done, guys. He was done with the Mets. We saw what he had. He had nothing left in the tank when he was here. Clearly needed a change of scenery. That's just something that happens. It's not a guy that I'm going to look back on and say, man, I can't believe we let Travis Darno go. Yeah, I understand what you're saying with that. And while Travis Darno with the Mets looked like a very bad player, I think it was just the circumstances around his untimely release, based on the fact that he was still rehabbing from Tommy John's surgery. That was, I believe, like the first day of May. It was probably about the three-year anniversary of where we are right now, like the very beginning of May 2019 with Brody Van Wagenen, Mr. Hothead at the helm. Dude was making moves. He was like, right, we got to get rid of guys. If, we're not, if he's not playing well, get rid of him. Except for the players that he acquired. It was less than 12 months <laughs> since Travis Arnaud and Tommy John surgery. That's why it was weird that they actually cut him that day. But that's while they're under the bridge. In the sixth inning against Bassett, the Braves rally. Darno got the big hit. Adam Duvall put them ahead with a sacrifice fly. And those three runs were all the Braves needed to beat the Mets on a Monday night where the offense, again, just wasn't really there. Yeah, there weren't the big hits. I will say there was one big hit, though, and your boy called it, and everyone on Twitter was letting us know. I did call a Mark Canna home run in game one off of Max Freed. Crazy. So pat on the back there. It's about the only thing I called right in this series, though, I will say. I mean, I I guess. What else did you you even call? I thought the Mets were going to win the series. Come on, you got to take three. That was another call that I had. We're going to take three. I'm sure you had the same feeling, but yeah, uh, Canna hitting higher in the order, facing the lefty, makes sense in the short term, but as we saw later in the game, it ended up making us look a little weird because it's just when you're constructing a lineup, as we say, you always want the best hitters getting the most at bats. Canna, I don't think anyone would say is our best hitter, and it ended up hurting us later in the game. Yeah, this was a sequence that kind of had me a little bit agitated later in the game that Mark's alluding to. It was the seventh inning, and this time, at this point, right after the Braves rally, the Mets were down 3-2, to two, and Max Fried was on the ropes coming towards the end of his line here. Mark Canna comes up with the bases loaded and two men out, and Mark Hanna's been really good overall, and he had a really good game. He really had two hits at this point, including a home run. Like, he's really good. As you said, we try to preach. A lot of other organizations preach this. you got to put your best guys at the top of the order. And now we have the Mets down one with the bases loaded, two men out, and Mark Hanna is at the plate instead of Francisco Lindor, Jeff McNeil, or Pete Alonso, which didn't really make any sense to me. 
the Braves bought in Colin McHugh, very good reliever, blew Mark Anha away, and then Trevor May let let the Braves break it open next inning and the game got away. Yeah, and we now know that Trevor May was not healthy, is not healthy, will not be healthy for the foreseeable future. Hit the IL with some elbow sh- inflammation, right? Or no, no, like no, that? no, no. It's a stress reaction. His humorous. Oh, I. That's a lot of. What's where's the humorous? I believe it is the bone that's near your that's under your tricep. If I want okay. to be correct, I don't really remember exercise science. I think I dropped it after like a few weeks, but. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely never took exercise science. I was very much not into the biometrics of all that. But yeah, he was hurt. He was pitching hurt. It was obvious he didn't have his stuff again for what felt like the third or fourth appearance this year in a row. And he hits the IL. He got shelved. I mean, you feel for the guy. We've spoken to him. Friend of the podcast. Really nice dude. And you can tell all he does is want to win because after he was getting shelled and giving up the the hits and the home run, I mean, he was screaming into his glove almost to the point of tears, it seemed like. Saying I'm so fucking bad, like you can feel for the dude. Allegedly, you, allegedly, you're gonna you're gonna go on Twitter. You're gonna see people talking shit. They're gonna say you're horrible. Cut this guy. And like, by no means do we think that's where we should be going here with Trevor May. And it showed a little bit later in the series that we definitely need an arm like Trevor May to step up in this bullpen to really help us out. It's just unfortunate that he was out there when he wasn't at his healthiest, and it ended up. I don't want to say costing the Mets a win because the Mets were still losing. But definitely didn't keep this game close. Yeah, and just Trevor May is a competitor. He doesn't want to leave the field. Like, no other guy wants to leave the field. Like, he wants to be available to help his team win as much as humanly possible. Sadly, it just wasn't humanly possible, and it's hard to realize that as an athlete. Not that I am one or ever have been one, but I could imagine competing at the highest level. You want to be there as much as possible. So just cautioning all Mets fans not to give up on Trevor May. Don't forget how lights out this guy was last year. Hopefully we see him by the All-Star break, and then we can we can get this train moving again. Yeah, I think the official prognosis is what? He shut down for four weeks, no throwing, another MRI, and then they'll see what's going on then. It's very similar to the Jacob deGrom situation. It's just, yeah. it's like a... I don't, I don't know what humor says, but it's not. It's, I believe it's not his shoulder, so not as serious. Yeah, and uh, this is a little bit of a foreshadowing into something we're going to talk about at the end of the episode, which is probably going to need a little bit of bullpen help. Maybe, maybe just a slight smidge here. It's not that the Mets bullpen's bad, but losing an arm like Trevor May, we're now kind of shorthanded on the right-hand pitching side. Especially in terms of right-handed relievers who can pitch in high leverage and throw 98 miles an hour. Yes, that's that's one thing Trevor May does that a lot of guys don't do, throw 98 miles an hour. Moving on to game two, though. That one was a loss, game one. It is what it is. Sometimes you just you get outplayed. They got outplayed by the Braves. And again, the offense wasn't there getting the big hits, which we've talked about before. Sometimes the Mets will get the big hits, and they'll put up 10 runs, and sometimes they won't, and they'll have two like they did in game one. Now, game two, the boys were in attendance, doubleheader, a 3 o'clock start, which I don't honestly remember ever a three o'clock start game for the Mets before but we had the doubleheader with the seven line sitting first row and we had a good good matchup going up against the Braves game one David Peterson on the mound going up against who did we go up against I forgot now Charlie Morton oh Charlie Morton Uncle Charlie that's right because he didn't pitch like his normal self Mm -hmm. you would have thought that it was someone else and the Mets got to him early which was weird because when we saw the lineup going into this game, you said, okay, what what are we doing here? Jankowski and Cannon were hitting one, too. Yeah, it was just bizarre to see that tweet come through when I was on the 7 trade and heading to the park. And, like, hilariously, it worked out, and we'll talk about that. But this is just weird process, weird lineup stuff that we've been talking about again. Like, Jeff McNeil had been crushing for the whole last week. And Jeff McNeil had been hitting towards the top of the order for the last collection of games. So why with the righty on the mound is Jeff McNeil now once again hitting the bottom of the order and Travis Jankowski's hitting one with Mark Hanna behind him? Of course, it's baseball, though, and it completely worked. Travis Jankowski led off the game in just downright Mets fashion with an infield single and score the run. Travis Jankowski went up with another infield hit in this game. They make two infield hits and he wound up reaching on a fielder's choice. So that's three times on base without the ball leaving the infield and he walked. So Travis Jankowski got on base four times in this game out of the leadoff spot without hitting the ball out of the infield and scored three runs because baseball. That's kind of Mets baseball right now too though. We saw a stat flash up uh, during the game too that the Mets have the most infield hits in Major League Baseball by a wide margin. I think they have 12 more than the second highest team. So yeah, Jankowski is a big part of that because that seems to be his thing is getting infield hits. It did happen to work though this game. Like all yes. the people, including ourselves, questioning Buck, he ended up looking like he was pretty smart and knew what he was doing. Yeah, and the fact the Mets are 0-2 this year without Buck. So uh, all you analytics nerds out there, do the math. <laughs> Of course. And, you know, we had timely hitting as well. Pete Alonso, a couple big hits that got some runs in. Eduardo Escobar as well. The offense was clicking early. We were getting to Charlie Morton. We were making him throw pitches. He looked like he wasn't very comfortable on the mound for the first, like, four or five innings of this game. Yeah, and he has kind of looked like that this year. And we got a couple runs on the board early, two in the first inning. I think Pete got that other one in the third, I want to say, third, fourth. We had a couple runs. We gave some cushion to David Peterson. And 
the guy pitched pretty well again. Someone I told Mets fans I thought was going to be league average heading into the year, as crazy as a hot take that was, it turned out to be kind of true. Like, I was a little bit nervous heading into this one because the Braves are just good against left-handed pitching, and Peterson has struggled with this team one in the past, and also we've just seen Peterson make a few consecutive good starts successfully in the past while falling apart not far thereafter, but he looked good. Five innings, six strikeouts, four hits, three earned, three walks, just four hard-hit balls. And honestly, if this wasn't a doubleheader, I think that Peterson would have only thrown four really good innings, and this would have been an even better start that we could hang our hat on. But one thing has really impressed me with Peterson's the slider has just become a true out pitch. He had seven whiffs on 13 swings against a right-handed heavy lineup. He was just hammering, hammering that back foot, doing that again. That's become a weapon for him. And it's very important because his changeup, that was always his calling card coming through the minors, and as a first-round draft pick, has been lagging. But his four-seam fastball and his sinker got enough a called strike, so he just kept moving through this lineup. And again, if he didn't come out for that fifth inning, this would have been an incredible outing. It just wound, wound up being a good one. Luckily, the Mets had enough offense to withstand that rally. Yeah, and I mean, the error by himself also is part of the reason why like this went from a great outing to a good outing because there was that weak ground ball hit to him that would have been a tailor-made double play. Of course, can't assume the double play. No. But you could definitely assume one out, and he didn't. He, he just straight up missed it, rolled past the mound, ended up being first and second for Matt Olson, who came up and then hit that three-run home run to make it 5-4. But if he just feels that ball and even gets one out there, we're looking at 5-3. If he feels that ball and makes the double play, which I think was very, very possible at the time, you're looking at 5-1 still. He's coming out in five innings and having a fantastic start. So it's just like one little thing here and there that could have made this start look a little bit different. Either way, still fantastic, fantastic job by David Peterson. Very much needed in the doubleheader, like you said, because we know the bullpen, especially with Trevor May on the IL, the arms are getting a little bit weaker, as we can see. Yeah, and he did his job. If this wasn't a doubleheader, I'm sure that, I'm not sure, I'm pretty, I'm kind of sure, I'm hopeful that he wouldn't have seen this Braves lineup, including Matt Olson for a third time. And I told you in the third inning of this game that the third time the Braves see David Peterson, there's going to be a rally. And I was having a little bit of a, a bad stomach day at the ballpark, so I knew I was going to have to spend like a good quality 10-minute bathroom set. Shout out to all my brothers and sisters in arms with IBS out there. And I told Mark, I was like, hey, I'm going in the fifth inning because that's going to be the Braves rally. And I went. And that was when the home run happened, so. Yeah, as soon as the error happened, I was like, Matt Olson's hitting a home run and be crushed. That dude's so freaking good. He's like, does he even care about lefty-lefty? It feels like it doesn't even matter to him. Not really. And also, internally, the Mets should have also realized, like, hey, let's just take out lefty and bring in another lefty. Like, that should have been chasing Shreves at bat no matter what else was going on. Yeah, or Joelli. Or like, Joelli. Or Joelli. Whatever it was. Uh, again, doubleheader. That's probably why they're really trying to push the envelope here. 5-4, though, and then our boy, you know, Adam Adovino, he comes in, too. He pitches really, really well, and that was for his second straight appearance, right? That was second second straight yep. appearance. He had or, pitched. Well, he got blown up on Saturday. Not blown yeah. up. He crouched forward with a crazy home run off him. Didn't pitch Sunday. And now Monday, and now Tuesday again. Yeah, Tuesday so was a great inning. One of the best, well, best innings of the year. Struck out the side, I believe. That swing and miss uh, to Adam Duvall on the yeah, pitch that was about 60 inches off the plate that he swung at. Looked like the Todd Frazier swing with the Tukey Toussaint slider that happened a few years ago. It was, it was one of the worst swing and misses I've ever seen. Threw a he was absolutely filled. What did you say? I say threw a Frisbee. Yeah, he threw a Frisbee. He was absolutely disgusting. And then our boy Drew Chains came in and doing the Drew Chains thing. Two innings, scoreless baseball, disgusting. Second best reliever in the Mets bullpen. I, I think we can put the stamp on that pretty officially. Well, we're definitely going to get a chance to see if that's true because, again, with the May injury, it seems like Drew Smith is going to be the guy who's going to get a lot more high leverage late inning reps. And he's just, he's really taken advantage of it thus far. I was really impressed with those two innings. He's not given up a single run this entire year. That's, I believe, 12 straight appearances of scoreless baseball with the Mets for Drew Smith, aka Drew, Drew Chains. And I just, every time he comes into the game, I feel really, really comfortable and confident. I do as well. And it was very important for the Mets to get the two innings out of Drew in this game with another game coming and no off days before or after the series. So that was very important from Drew. And then Edwin came in, slammed the door, looked really, really good and a great, great team win for the Mets. Yeah, great team win. I guess if we had like one complaint for this game, because we're, we're going to do that, there's like this weird portion of the game where Charlie Morton was on the ropes and the Mets decided to get extremely aggressive and saw 26 pitches, I think, in three innings. I thought it was 27, Char something like that. Yeah, something like that. Kept Charlie Morton in the game a lot deeper than he really should have been and kind of helped too because then they could go to Jesse Chavez, who we can never figure out how to hit. I guess he kind of just does that to everyone. He's kind of a good reliever. He is. And that saved their bullpen, which yeah. kind of builds into a little bit more of the story here as we keep going. But we had a chance to knock Charlie Morton out. 
we were swinging at a lot of first pitches. I get it. He throws strikes. He doesn't really walk guys, but just felt like the at the beginning of the game, the Mets were really patient. It was playing off or paying off. And then now later in the game, they just kind of got restless. It felt like, and we're swinging at everything. Yeah. I mentioned this verbatim in the preview for the Braves series from Monday, but I said that if the Mets really wanted to win the series. The goal was knocking out one of the Braves starting pitchers very early in a doubleheader. And in a game where you score five runs in four innings and the t- other team only has to use two pitchers, like that to me is a bit of a failure inside of a four-game series when you're trying to put the team down. Definitely, definitely. And it gave different vibes going into game three, although we will say the vibes in the stadium were rocking. Everyone was yes. feeling great. You always feel great when you win game one of the doubleheader. Seven line was there. We're feeling good. The Mets had a nice little offensive performance there up against Charlie Morton, beating the World Series champions. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of, Continued on, Carlos Carrasco on the mound was absolutely phenomenal. I don't think it can be understated how important this guy has been to this team. As bad as he was in 2021, he has completely just gone 360, right? Or 180, what do you say? 180, 360 is the same. Okay, so yeah, he's done a 180 and he's been so good. <laughs> Definitely. I'm not going to take a victory lap either in Carlos Carrasco. I'm going to take like a victory jog, maybe a victory like a, a victory 100 meter victory instead of the full lap. You could You could do the bat flip for like a double off the wall. Sure, yeah, but I don't want to do that. That makes that looks pretty bad. He's got to hustle into second. Bat flip into a slide is a bad look. But I told everyone to exhibit patience with Carlos Carrasco, that he was working on a lot of things last year that I thought would be meaningful in the long term. And it's proven to be true. Like, he definitely isn't this good, a little bit like the way Taiwan Walker started last season. Like, Carlos Carrasco is not going to be a guy who pitches the whole season to, like, a 2-8 ERA. Like, he's probably not going to win 18 games unless something really clicks. But this is exactly, exactly, exactly what we needed from Carrasco. Last year, when he was included in the Francisco Lindor trade, and then just heading into this year with all the question marks surrounding our starting rotation, he went eight innings in this second game of the doubleheader against the Braves, a game that was, what, two hours and 20 minutes in total? Yeah, it was a quick one, and we were complaining about the first game being so long, because remember, I think like in the first like three innings, or the first inning, whatever it was, that was the most pitches ever thrown in a Mets first inning, I believe you said. Or like a Mets-Braves game. It was something like yeah. there were like 80-something pitches or 75 pitches between the two teams in the first inning. We were like, oh, here we go, going to be a long night here at the park, and we were on the train going home by 9.15, but a lot of that was due to Carlos Carrasco working very efficiently in the second game, going eight innings, five strikeouts, six hits, two walks, like... That is what we need. Let's go, baby. The first pitcher in all of baseball to go more than seven innings twice this season is Carlos Carrasco. Yeah, I don't I don't think anyone could have made that bet. If if you made that bet before the year, you'd be like, you're crazy. This is a guy who's locked in for five, but he has been so when he's on, he's able to give us length and especially like you said in this doubleheader, so massive. He's just old school. He attacks hitters, he doesn't really overcomplicate things. And he looked good. This game specifically, it was one of the least complicated he's ever made his starts with the Mets with the Mets because he threw 82% four-seam fastballs and sliders. That is the most, like, um, I don't know, the most focus I've ever seen Carrasco on two pitches in his tenure with the Mets. And he was not perfect. The Braves had lots of hard-hit balls, lots of them. And again, Carrasco couldn't really get a feel for either his sinker, his changeup, or his curveball. But those two pitches I said he focused on, the fastball and the slider, clearly those are two pitches that he knew going into the game he was going to have. Each of them had at least eight whiffs, and his whiff rate was over 30% for the entire game. So with only five strikeouts in eight innings, that high whiff rate makes you think there could be more strikeouts following. And he even isn't that sharp, and he's getting people out over and over and over again. It's it's very comforting to see what we have in Carlos Carrasco, and it gives me a nice, a nice hope for his floor as the season progresses. Yeah, as our back end of the rotation guy, it's really nice to have that consistency that we've seen from Carlos Carrasco thus far this season, as well as Carlos Carrasco's strikeout performances early on in the game got the boys on TV. We got framed up beautifully on SNY. It's almost like it wasn't an accident. It's almost like someone was like, we're getting we're getting the Mets up boys on there. We had two cameras technically on us. We had one. You guys will find out a little bit in the future about why one was on us. The other was the SNY camera. Boom, right on the seven line, right on us, perfectly framed up. My phone was blown up. I know yours was too. Twitter oh, yeah. was going crazy. I, every, I think on the YouTube video for the Mets recap, we're in it as well. We're on it for Twitter, doing everything. The Oh, struck him out with the seven line. It was cool. I think that was the first time I've ever been on TV, actually. Really? For anything? Yeah. For I mean, like maybe like when I was a kid, I maybe got like a quick face on a Mets game or a basketball game. But that was the first time since Draft Nick Mark, I guess, has really started that your boy got legitimate television screen time. I've had a lot of local news spots in my life. At least three times I've been on local news between Ohio and New York, New Jersey, just like a la Clay Thompson when he was worried about scaffolding a few years ago in one of the best Twitter videos ever. I was highlighted. I did like 35, 40 seconds one time because a turbine in my plane 
exploded as I was taking off in Puerto Rico. Crazy don't story. Be, don't want to be on the news for that. No, I mean, everyone was safe. Thank God everyone's okay. But I was on the news for that. I was on the news another time, like pumping myself up for the Ohio State's college football championship around 2014. There was another time, I'm trying to remember right now, but I can't. But I was, I've, been, I've met a few local local TV appearances. I think I now remember I had one, and it was actually in Houston, Texas. So no one literally would have known because, again, I would think I was like 13. What was it Hurricane Sandy, the big one that hit, that like everybody lost power, got like yeah. flooding, flooded basements? We were stuck in Texas, me and my family. We were just like hanging out in Texas in the summer. It's an omen. And we had, yeah, we had to fly back. And they were like, well, you can't because there's Hurricane Sandy going on. So I think we like flew into Washington. We're in the airport for like 18 hours or something crazy like that. And I got interviewed by a newscast. They're like, hey, can we can we talk to you? I'm like, I'm like 12, but sure. Okay. Asked me a bunch of questions. I'm like, I just want to go home. (laughs) The time I was on the news for the longest period of time, like close ups of my face after that turbine thing on eyewitness news. It had been right after we graduated high school, and that night I got back, I was going to a graduation party at my friend's house, and I was walking through her house to go to the bathroom while her dad was sitting on the couch, like half asleep, watching the news, and as I walk past him and walk into the bathroom, literally my face pops up on the news, says like, James Giano, resident of Westfield, New Jersey, wearing an Ohio State shirt and like a backwards Brooklyn Dodgers hat, just looking like the biggest 18-year-old douchebag you could draw <laughs> with a pen or pencil, and he was like, oh my god, it's you, I was like, oh yeah, it's me, oh my god, I can't believe they got this on here, but... And beat Bobby Flay. Yeah, beat Bobby Flay. I forgot about that. It was a paid extra for beat Bobby Flay in the fall. I, I was on TV. I was flashed a few times. I got a line in. You got more screen time than I have. Yeah, really? <laughs> Face for camera. Again, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a huge awesome offensive showing in this game, but the Dom Smith redemption tour continued. He got a big double for us, a two-run double off of Kyle Wright. Dom Smith continues to be swinging the bat better. I don't know if I'll say he's officially back. The numbers are a little inflated with that four for four in a small sample size, but the fact that Dom's got, what, five hits in his last three appearances, that's a good sign moving forward, especially mm-hmm. when we did cut Robinson Cano. He's no longer a part of this team, which, did we talk about that in the last episode? We talked about the fact that we wanted it to happen, but so we wouldn't address it. I guess now it's old news. Yeah, it's, it's kind of old news, but yeah, Robinson Cano's cut. Woo! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will say, the cool thing about the Cano cutting, I should say, is that Billy Epler went to Steve Cohen and said, what do you want to do? And he presented all the options, presented all the financials, presented everything, and Steve Cohen said, Made the, make the baseball decision. Love that. That's so sick. Steve Cohen. That's all we've wanted. That's all we've wanted from an owner. Baseball decisions, not financially driven. Unbelievable. Now, it's, it's going to hurt when Robinson Cano inevitably signs like the Yankees or the White Sox or the Padres and has like a hot week for a yeah. team that really needs a lefty bat and has def- ample defensive replacements on their bench, unlike the Mets, but just block it out. Robinson Cano not being on this team makes them better, and that's all that matters. For sure. Pete, of course, hit the home run as well. He's somehow second in the league in RBIs, which also, sorry, Marte's, what, third, I think, in the National something League like in RBIs? Like six or something. It's even crazier, especially when I go into some stats later on here. Clean game, though. Clean game start to finish. Mets win it. Seth Lugo gets the save, and we sweep the doubleheader feeling really good because you can't lose to the Braves in this series at the absolute worst. You're even with them, which is a pretty good spot to be if you're the Mets, considering you have like a, what, four and a half, five game lead on the Braves, I think. I think it was more, but uh, it's, it's, I'm not looking at standings. It's May. Fine. Just fine, win as many fine. games as you can. You can keep me level-headed. That's fine. <laughs> Moving into game four now. Don't, do you and... forget what happened last year? Like, how could you care about the standings the game's up in May? I'm a Mets fan. Of course I forget about what happens every year. <laughs> I try my hardest to forget about everything that happens every single year. Let me enjoy first place in May like I do every year. Oh, my God. All right, keep going. All right, game four, poop fest. Uh, poop it, it was poop cool. Fest. It started off cool. McGill Great. was awesome. He actually... <laughs> had thrown nine consecutive no-hit innings, which that's kind of fun, a fake way to throw a no-hitter, but McGill's still so good. He's really good. He continues to be really good, and he looked really comfortable, especially early on in this game against the Braves. Definitely. McGill came out of the gates very hot in this game, as he does very often when he pitches, but it just kind of, except that Giants game, it just continues to hammer home the idea that while Tyler McGill has looked incredible, he is still very much developing. You mentioned it, but he just started off very hot. He had seven strikeouts through the first four innings of this game and nine through the first five. And it looked like he was just going to cruise along to another great Tyler McGill start. His four-seam fastball was missing bats as usual. I think he got nine whiffs on 22 swings in this game. That's elite. Some of the best pitchers in baseball won't do that on a start-by-start basis. McGill actually is one of the highest four-seam fastball whiff rates in all of baseball, which is the mark of a guy who has a wildly high floor because he can throw his most basic pitch right at hitters, and they won't hit it. Downside, though, of this is that his velocity was down for kind of it's kind of been a, a multiple start thing here now he's he came off that 98 99 that we saw him for the first two starts of the year and this was his first start all year where he didn't crack 97 miles an hour so I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing about Tyler McGill's like outlook for the rest of the season but the writing did seem to be on the wall that he wasn't 
going to be able to give prototypical length in this outing. And not even that he's given prototypical length all year. I don't even think he's amassed 95 pitches in any particular start. But he worked out of trouble in the fifth inning when the Braves had two on and none out. Pretty impressive that he got out of that too, by the yeah. way. Because he he like just he turned into a like different gear and he was just dominant. Like you're you're not beating me. It's not happening. I'm Tyler McGill, big drip, big dick, whatever you want to call him. I mean, he was he was pretty filthy once his back was pushed up against the wall, which I think is big. You talk about development, talk about some high leverage situations, being able to just kind of nut up like that and be better. That's kind of sick. Super sick. And Tyler McGill has that gear. And that's one of the most encouraging things about the way he pitches. But after that inning, the Braves hit a few balls hard. He was getting less swings and misses. Did get the two strikeouts, but it seemed like he had to really work for them. That would have been, if I was manager, I would have been like, all right, this is the time. We should probably not send it back out again. And he did send it back out again to face the meat of the Braves order for a third time. Metal sent a fly out. No big deal. And then there were back-to-back-to-back singles. So bases loaded, one out. And now Buck comes and gets the ball and brings Adam Adovino in the game. Which is going to be his third appearance in three days, fourth appearance in five. This is a guy who is not, it's not something he hasn't done before. He did it, I think they said three times with the Red Sox last year and was fairly successful. But that sample size is so small that it really doesn't matter. Like three times over a what, 365 day stretch is not anything to really hang your hat on. And for a guy like Adovino who has such a high variance of, being able to walk guys. He'll, he'll just walk guys sometimes. He won't have the control. That's something that he's always had in his career. As well as you could see it with this fastball, it just had no life. You could tell he wasn't sharp, and he got absolutely just smashed. He did not look good, and that's going to happen. I'm not pissed at Adovino. He came in and clearly wasn't his best. That's going to happen at times, but it is a little bit frustrating that it feels like for a bullpen that we thought coming into the season had a little bit more depth like this, that we made a decision that seemed not the smartest yeah if it was me personally i would have brought seth lugo in but we're splitting hairs this was really just a sophie's choice for buck with a doubleheader yesterday a game on monday and a four game series starting on probably today thursday when you guys are listening to this so there wasn't really any depth in this bullpen to go off of drew smith i'm sure was unavailable trevor may is on the il seth lugo closed the second game yesterday so i'm sure that buck wanted him for what theoretically would have been a higher leverage situation later in the game but if you're looking at this game from an objective standpoint this is 0-0 in the sixth inning but the base is low the one man out this is the highest leverage i'm sure the game will have ever seen i bet that at bat to darno where he ended up being walked had one of the highest changes in win probability for this whole game before the double that was hit next so i personally if edwin diaz is your 100 percent full-time closer and he can't pitch the sixth inning because that's not his role sure you have to bring what i would you believe to be your best reliever into what seems to be the the biggest inflection point in the game and that didn't happen Adam Adovino also, he, he he could have gotten out of it. But this is the issue with situations where you don't make the perfect decision. You just make a decision that seems to be the right one, and it comes it backfires sometimes. Yeah, uh, and I think we might be back to that Seth Lugo thing of not working two days in a row because yeah, he, worked, too. he worked he worked two point. days in a row the first two games of the season, and then we know we hit that weird little rough patch. So it seems like, because that's the only time he's worked two days in a row, that maybe he, they're just back to doing that, which is such a killer, too, because he threw eight pitches. He threw eight pitches the day before. you got to be able to come out and throw again after throwing eight pitches. Again, I don't, I'm, not, I'm sure this isn't a Seth Lugo thing. I'm sure he's not like, I don't want to be out there. I threw eight yesterday. But it is tough, especially when you are being handcuffed a little bit because you have lost some depth in the bullpen to not have what is one of your better relievers go out there in a situation that makes the most sense for him to be out there. Again, splitting hairs, like you said, there were bigger issues in this game, like the fact that the Mets continued to not hit and have just they've gone ice cold they've been hot they've been cold they've been hot they've been cold is kind of a developing story here with the Mets it's either they're gonna all hit or nobody's gonna hit and this was just one of those games where nobody really hit yeah and that magnifies the fact that it's a zero zero game in the sixth inning with the bases loaded nobody out in a situation where one or two runs you did feel like would break the Mets back it eventually turned into seven before you could blink and that did certainly break the Mets back but if this was a 2-0 game, and it could have been a 2-0 game or a 3-0 game. The Mets had plenty of chances in the first few innings of this game. Peter Alonso had that bat with Menon. Francisco Lindor came up a time or two with Menon. I believe somewhere lower in the order came up with Menon. I want to say it was Canna. It could have been I Giorme. think Giorme came up, too, with some guys on yeah. later in the game. There were chances, and the Mets weren't able to cash in. That made a sixth inning feel like the highest leverage situation possible, like I was mentioning, because you did feel like if you let the Braves get multiple runs, that this game might get out of hand. And yeah, I don't I don't want to keep, you know, being the same drum here, but we have talked about Bucks decision making. We've talked about the bullpen decision making. This is something that 
we've known has been a thing with Buck forever. But if what you said is true, and it does make a lot of sense that Seth Lugo isn't throwing back-to-back days anymore, then Adam Adovino is your best pitcher, not named Edwin Diaz, who was available to even pitch in this game. So it seemed like Buck maybe was trying to use Adovino, didn't want to for his third straight day, but knowing that he's his best shot at the strikeout, get through an inning, pray to God, and then you send Trevor Williams out there for the 7th and 8th, pray to God you find a run, he keeps the Braves off the board. Like I think that was the, the path Buck was trying to go down. And it does make sense if we know Drew Smith was not available and if Seth Lugo was not. So again, I can't really fault Buck for this, not knowing the whole story. Yeah, and also I think this builds into what is, I think, maybe a concern now is the Mets' bullpen depth, especially if we're going to be using Drew Smith as much as we are now because he was kind of like an added extra when we came into this year of like, man, Drew Smith is going to be like our third or fourth guy. How great is that? Where Drew Smith is now very much thrown to the fire going to be pitching a lot of high leverage situations, especially if Seth Lugo can't go two days, especially if Ottavino now kind of takes over as more of these high leverage situations. There aren't as many quality arms as we thought, and it's not because guys aren't, aren't, aren't good. It's just because we have had injuries. Losing a guy like Trevor May is so massive to this bullpen. It pushes everybody else up one, especially when we're carrying two lefties, and we have Trevor Williams, who's kind of like this long mop-up role. Like, there's just a lot of spots. Adonis Medina took the spot of Trevor May right now. There's a lot of spots that can't really handle the situations that we need them to be in, which I think could maybe down the line be a bigger issue for this Mets team, and maybe something we need to look at going forward is acquiring maybe another right-hand arm for the bullpen. Or the fact that just maybe the lefties in the Mets bullpen can face righties. I know Travis Darno is notoriously significantly better against lefties than righties, so that exact situation, but Joely Rodriguez has looked really good over the last few weeks. I believe it's six straight scoreless outings for him after that Real Muto home run, and he's a guy over the course of his career has shown he can get both righties and lefties out. Jason Shreve is a guy who has a relatively deep pitch mix who has shown over the course of his career can get righties and lefties out. It seems like one of those two will have to step up in this Mets bullpen, and maybe the Mets will have to not be so rigid in their use of a lefty enters the game only when there's a lefty at the plate. Because the way Major League Baseball lineups are ordained now, you're going to have lefty, righty, lefty, righty, basically going down the whole order. So if you're bringing a lefty in to face a lefty, there's going to be a righty behind him who's going to hit him better than he would hit a righty. So at this point, just bring in Joely Rodriguez to face Travis Arnault with the bases loaded and hope for the ground ball. Joely Rodriguez has shown the ability to get this year. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if anybody would have been questioning the decision if Drew, if Adam Adovino was the only other option having pitched would have been his fourth time in five days. Like if Adovino was fully rested, ready to go, yes, you obviously put Adovino in there and you just, what happens, happens at that point. But the fact that we have two guys seemingly that won't be used in higher leverage situations because of the left-handed arm is a little bit frustrating, especially against a Braves team who has one left-handed bat, and that's Matt Olson. You're not really worried about anybody else who's a lefty on that team. So yes, yeah, so at that point, you just need someone to get people out. But I think, again, this problem is being exacerbated by the fact that the Mets could not get on the board against a guy like Ian Anderson, who was absolutely not sharp in the slightest. He had Super one strikeout, mediocre. walked four Mets. The ball was around the plate all day. There were plenty of balls in play. It's just for some reason, they just couldn't really drive anything couldn't get the round on him yeah i mean more of the story here is guys they lost the game we know this i got some fun hitting stats for you and by fun i mean it really makes you want to rethink your life because since the trip to arizona the mets straight up stink at hitting and there's a couple guys that are playing well mcneil is still really good doing his jeff mcneil thing it doesn't really make sense when you look at it on like hard hit rate and all that kind of stuff. But Jeff McNeil has clearly gone back to the game that he once played. I think they even talked about that fact that he said, yeah, I know the baseballs aren't traveling, so I'm stopping. I don't care about hitting for power anymore. I'm just going to put the ball in play like I have. And it's shown in his numbers. He's back to the old Jeff McNeil. Got robbed of a home run today by Guillermo Heredia as well, who's turning into a rat fuck very quickly with the club because former Met as well. So yeah, yeah, I mean, the offense hasn't been great. That really plays into the stats I'm about to tell you because Lindor, Alonzo, Nimmo, Marte, and Escobar, who are our top five hitters probably in this lineup on any given day, have been really, really bad since we went to Arizona. Their OPS, James, is under 600. If I gave you an over-under, you probably would just say over simply because they have to be over 600. No, 556. It's bad. Over a 12-game stretch for more than half of our lineup. The one through five, basically. 556 with three homers, six doubles. That's nine extra base hits in 12 games from these guys who are supposed to kind of be extra base hit machines. It's also 12 games times five. It's 60 games, theoretically. Yeah, over 60. Yeah, I didn't even think about it like that. How many walks do you think these guys had in these 12 games? Oh, my God. Six? 17. It's a little bit higher. Five hit by pitch. (laughs) But that's a 279 on base percentage for those five hitters. That's 
really, really bad. The batting average, I know batting average doesn't matter, but 209, that's really <laughs> bad. The slugging, the slugging, 277, I mean, Jesus oh Christ, that's horrible. I looked up into some deeper numbers here. I love barrels. Barrels is one of my favorite stats that you can look at. Basically tells you you hit the ball hard and you hit it at a good launch angle. The Mets have 12 barrels. Which of those five Mets do you think has the most? Oh, God. Nimmo. Nimmo. Nimmo with four. Pete nice. is last with one barrel during that time. One barreled up baseball. That's probably the one home run. Yeah, that's the one home run. 174 balls have been put into play by those five guys in this 12-game stretch. 116 of them are considered weak slash bad contact by baseball savant. 40 of those are considered to be flares and burners, which are basically bad contact that just falls for hits or falls for a little bloop here and there. Four. They don't, they doesn't, they don't necessarily have to fall for hits. That's just bad yeah. contact. Four solid contact balls along with the 12 barrels. So that doesn't include barrels. It's just worse, but still good contact. 88 ground balls of those 174 are put in play. These are all bad, bad numbers that are not great. And I'm not trying to say this guy is falling, but it's, I'm going to spin zone at the end. So don't worry about it. Let me keep going here. I'll, I'll spin zone <laughs> at the end. 56 hard hit balls, 21 of those on the ground. That's a hard hit rate of 32.18%. I was looking at players who are doing similar things to the Mets offense over the last 12 games, just kind of as a whole. We're looking as if the first five batters of this Mets lineup are Elvis Andrews or Jerickson Profar these last 12 games. Those are two of your favorite players. Those are two of my favorite players for being so horrendously bad. (laughs) Their barrels per batted ball event is 6.9%. Like, nice, cool, 69. But also, no, not nice. Very bad. Horribly bad. You know who has a very, very similar barrels to batted ball event year? Who? Jerickson Profar. Stop stop bringing them up. (laughs) Jerickson Profar. Barrels per plate appearances, 4.5%. You know who else has 4.5%? Lindor. Lindor. Jerks and Profar. Oh, <laughs> Jerks <Jesus>. and Profar. <laughs> the one through five over the last 12, 13 games has been Jerks and Profar. So here's Stop my it. spin zone. <laughs> the Mets are still winning games despite having five Jerks and Profars in the lineup. That's crazy. So I know we're getting extremely lucky. And I think as we dive deeper and deeper into these numbers, again, 12 games, it is a small sample. You don't expect this over a full season. The Mets were scalding hot to start the year. But over this second half of the season, in the young season that it has been, the first five hitters of this Mets lineup who are getting the most at-bats and the most played appearances and are the guys who are supposed to do the heavy lifting have essentially disappeared. And we are still doing pretty well. So just imagine when these bats do inevitably start to produce a little bit more, start to get a little bit hotter, the Mets are going to be fine. So I'm going to spin the zone this one and say that despite the majority of this lineup being jerks and profar, we are still relatively playing good baseball. I don't know how or why with one guy swinging the bat well. That's Jeff McNeil and Luis Guillorme who hit his first home run of the year because that guy's a king. Can I say something that's just awful? Wait, yeah. when did Guillorme hit a home run? Late in the game. Late in the game. He hit one today? Time. He hit one today down the right field line. <laughs> I might leave that in. <laughs> Fucking love Luis Guillorme. I, uh, some way, somehow, he has to play more. He's he's hitting better than all these guys. <laughs> the one thing I want to say, I've got, I missed the home run. I've been moving all day. It's been chaos, but... This is exactly like sitting in a time machine from a year ago. I know. It's exactly how it feels. The Mets are getting magnificent pitching from sources that we didn't really expect, that we don't really see as the most sustainable things in the world. And their bats were like, they got to be better. They got to be better. They got to be better. For some reason, they just get very hot and cold. They don't hit the ball that hard. Offense is down league-wide, of course. But it's I don't know, I'm a little bit scared by the fact that also just they just might need another bat with power. They probably need someone who's going to hit the ball harder consistently. I think Starling Marte has been a a bit of a disappointment if we're going to really get into this conversation real quick, just because he looks old. Uh, He didn't look old last year with Oakland and Miami and wherever he was, but he looks old this year. He's getting thrown out stealing. He's not as fast. His sprint speed numbers are down. The hard contact numbers are down. Like all the numbers are down. That's expected. We knew signing an older player that this was a real possibility. We just maybe didn't think it was going to come this quickly. And I think that the way the lineup's constructed right now, you almost have to stop caring about guys' egos and their potentials. Lindor and Pete, I'm fine with hitting three and four every day. Those guys are going to figure it out. They're very, very good hitters. But a guy like or Starling Marte, yeah, or two and three, but a guy like Starling Marte probably has to be towards the bottom of the order right now. And you have you have to find a way to get Jeff McNeil more at bats. The way he's swinging the bat, you have to find a way to get more at bats. And even a guy like Mark Canna, who I know we talked about being higher in the order, wasn't the greatest decision. In this time when everyone's struggling, he's still doing the Mark Canna thing. Hitting yeah. 300, 350 on base, 417 slugging, 767 OPS, 40 plate appearances. So again, it doesn't really, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't really like uh, 
even out. It's not like a real sample size for these stats. But he is doing what he's always done. It's just he's boring. That's Mark Cannon. That's why we call him Marky Cheerios. But the meat of the order here, the top five hitters that we think about when we think about this lineup day in and day out, have been struggling struggling massively. And I don't know how you fix it. I don't know when it will get fixed. But they have to swing the bat more because you just you can't have five jerks and profiles in a lineup. No, definitely. And a lot of this will fall on Pete and Lindor. Those two guys both have to get hot. Francisco Lindor has been absolutely ice cold since we anointed him the MVP of the National League. So we look kind of like idiots for that. I took multiple victory laps on Twitter, so I'm really hoping this skid doesn't go another week. But those are the two guys who are really along with Brandon Nimmo, the only ones I thought and projections backed me up on this going into the year were going to be like significantly better than league average, like potential for 20, 30, 40% better than league average with the bat. Like as much as I love Sterling Marte as a player and as, as much money as the Mets gave him and as like popular as he is and how his counting stats have always been great the last few years, he's just never really been an elite bat. He could be an elite baseball player without being an elite bat. Yeah. And Sterling Marte just doesn't really hit the ball hard. He hits it on the ground more often than not, and he doesn't hit for that much power. And now the fact that he's only 50% on the stolen bases, that makes this thing work, work a lot better. Howie gave a crazy, crazy anecdote he got from Wayne Kirby today about why Marte's been getting caught more often than not. What do you have for us? Kirby said Marte's been getting much smaller leads this year, and that's why a lot of the times he's been getting called out. It's been by like a step. So you would think that was because of his sprint speed, lost a step. Well, he has lost a step. Apparently, he's a bit confused by the inlets in City Field because they changed the inlets this year to facilitate NYCFC playing more games there. So with that, the inlets at City Field are apparently a little bit more, a little bit like carved out closer to the bag than most other parks in baseball. Stalling Marte, man, man of principle, man of habit, he takes his lead to the inlet. That's what he does. As to the field, that's basically a step less of a lead. He's been called out. He's been he's been thrown out by a step multiple times, especially at home. Wow, that's isn't that crazy? That is crazy. And I, like as a former player, I can completely relate to that because anytime you start to get past that cutout, former you're high like, school player, yeah, former high school player. I think everyone knows that by now. <laughs> that's been listening. I will never pretend to be a major leaguer, former major leaguer, but I think that makes sense because once you start getting past the cutout, you're like, this This is a big lead here. Like, it's just, it's a mental thing. It doesn't really matter how far it actually looks to you. The cutout is usually about what a good lead is. You get to the cutout, that's a good lead. That's really interesting. And they need the sod at that spot because that's where the rest of the soccer field kicks in. Wow. I never, That's like something I never would have even slightly thought of. No. And this, these are the kind of things you get listening to the Mets radio broadcast, baby. Howie Rose. That is, that is very intricate. I will say, as rough as the offense has looked, as quiet as the bats have been, we do get those games sprinkled in there. And again, that's because we hit singles, and that's what's going to happen. But going into the next series, we're going into a great place to really get the bats to warm up. If you're not going to Colorado... Let's go to Philly. And the Mets usually swing the bat pretty well in Philly. Everyone likes to hit there. It's a band box. And we do have a very, very big, again, four-game series going up against the Philadelphia Phillies. I'm tired of seeing this fucking team. But we have been pretty successful against them. So it's been okay. Yeah, pretty successful against them. And we get Max Scherzer in the series, which is a a big sigh of relief. But before that happens, just take you through the pitching matchups. Thursday night, likely tonight when you're listening to this, Taiwan Walker against Aaron Nola in a matchup that... It's probably the most lopsided pitching matchup the Mets have had to deal with this entire season. Yeah, I mean, Taiwan has looked fine in his one start back. He looked, he's facing the Phillies again. Only only against the Phillies. Three straight appearances against the Phillies. Only three appearances this year, which oh, I don't I, like. I was just about to say, I don't like that. I don't like that. The only three times he's pitched this year has been against the same team. Keep an eye out on Taiwan in this game. I think this will be very telling as to how he's pitching right now. Also, something very interesting about this Mets-Phillies series, before I take you through the other three pitching matchups, four-game series... All four games with a different start time. Wow, really? What's ti- what times do we have? Thursday, 6.45, so everyone be on the lookout. It's game starting 20 minutes earlier than usual. Friday night, 7.05, normal. Max Scherzer versus Kyle Gibson in a game where I will, I'll probably break a chair if the Mets lose. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday afternoon, the 4 o'clock slate, great time for a ball game. Chris Bassett versus Zach Eflin, another game where I would like to see the Mets take advantage, but Bassett's a guy who will last some fly ball, so Philly could be dangerous for him. And in Sunday afternoon baseball, Mother's Carl- Day, Mother's Day, Mother's Day game, pink bats. Shout out all the moms out there. Shout out all the moms listening to the show. One thirty-five, new across baseball starting time on Sundays. Carlos Carrasco versus Ranger Suarez in a game where the bats could also be active. Yes, there's this. This is a really, really interesting pitching matchup. It seems like none of them really lined up to be what you would expect. No, Bassett, Eflin, a little bit. 
and I mean, there's really not too much for us here to talk about with previewing the Phillies. We've played them, what, twice, seven, seven times already? Six times already, seven more before the month is out. So you guys know everything you need to know about the Phillies. We know Kyle Schwarber's hot. He remembered how to hit, so that's going to be fun to deal with. And we know that he, he did some damage against Taiwan last year. So hopefully Taiwan is able to settle down the bats there a little bit. The Mets swing. I think they're going to be okay. The pitching really has been good. Keep an eye out on the bullpen because we do lose an arm there. I, I'm not... I, I feel good. Like, I think there's a chance that a lot of Mets fans are a little bit nervous after what we just saw because it's always hard to end a series with a really bad taste in your mouth getting routed by the, Ra- by the Braves 9-2. to but this team, despite the offense being hot and cold, has still put together pretty good performances. The pitching has still been very good. There's no reason that the Mets, again, shouldn't be able to win a series against the Philadelphia Phillies here. No, or at least, again, split it because this team seems like they need a jolt in the arm right now. And until we see Francisco Lindor, Pete Alonso, Starling Marte, Eduardo Escobar, until we see it, not Starling Marte because he doesn't hit the ball hard, until we see Francisco Lindor, Pete Alonso, Eduardo Escobar start to consistently drive the baseball, it's going to be hard to score runs because you just kind of have to benefit off good luck and other teams' mistakes. Luckily, this other team's probably going to make a lot of mistakes in the Philadelphia Phillies. A ton of mistakes. And just go back to the game that we were playing at the beginning of the year. Patient, hitting the right pitches, driving the ball the other way, taking the doubles, taking the triples. Like I don't think this team's going to hit a lot of home runs. It feels like they might hit the least amount of home runs maybe in all of baseball this year, just how it's constructed. Yeah, they're kind of pacing themselves for that. But again, you weren't going to hit that many home runs in City Field anyway. This was no. a situation where... Seems like Ben Zausmer kind of saw the writing on the wall, and it seems like they might have just gotten lucky with the fact that no one can home runs because MLB's screwing with the ball. So maybe the Mets did just lean into contact, and that was the plan, and then they kind of caught a little bit of good wind here with the ball being bad. So just keep putting the ball in play. Put in play as much as possible. The Mets are the second lowest strikeout rate in all of baseball. Keep with that. Make the Phillies make mistakes. Yes, and I think that's a really good way to kind of wrap up this episode here. The four-game series with the Phillies coming up, Mother's Day. Make sure you guys spend some time with the moms. Shout out to the moms, as James said. That is going to be it here for episode number 89 of the Messed Up Podcast. Thank you guys for listening and watching. Follow us on all our social media at Messed Up. You'll be able to find us anywhere. Follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Follow me at Giraffe Neck Mark. Shout out to everybody who saw us at the stadium during the Seven Line game. Shout out to the Seven Line and Darren as well for giving us tickets and, of course, presenting the podcast as well. It's always great to be partnered up with them and meet all the people at the stadium. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, drop us a rating, drop us a review. It really does help us out. And we will see you guys for episode number 90 of the Mets Up Podcast. Look at us, 9-0. Nice round number. Haven't done that in a few for the uh, Philly series. Hopefully we uh, get another series win here. Still haven't lost one yet, though. That's a positive. See you guys next time. Peace out. Peace out, guys.